Hello and welcome to the Level Playing Field podcast. My name is Liam Bird and I am the Fan Liaison Officer at Level Playing Field, a charity that advocates for better access and inclusion for disabled sports fans. On this month's podcast, we'll be looking back to the distressing events that took place at the Euro 2020 final at Wembley. So this was the first time in 50 years that England have qualified for a final of a major tournament. This was meant to be a day of pride and full of celebration. Sadly, this was not the case for many disabled supporters who attended the game. In this podcast, we want to look at what went wrong, why it went wrong, and what can be done to make sure that this never happens again. We did reach out to the Metropolitan Police, UEFA, Wembley and Brent Council to see if anyone would like to speak on the record about what happened, but all declined. However, you can read all their press statements on what happened at the final, and they can be read via a link in the episode description of this podcast. Or visit the Level Playing Field website and click on the podcast page. In the absence of the Metropolitan Police Force, I will be speaking to Nick Glynn. Nick is currently the Senior Program Officer for Open Society Foundation, specialising in policing and justice. However, before that, Nick spent 30 years in the police force, overseeing major events in Leicestershire, including football matches at Leicester City. I will also be speaking to the Chair of Level Playing Field, Tony Taylor, regarding the work that the charity has and continues to do regarding the final, including how Level Playing Field is contributing to the independent review that is currently taking place. But we start with Graham and Tim, a father and son who attended the game at Wembley at the final. In front of me, down a laptop, that is kind of the norm nowadays, um, I have Graham and Tim. How are you both? Good, thank you. Good, thank you. Yeah, not too bad. So let's kind of get to why we're talking today. Is Because uh, both of you attended the Wembley final um, alongside a family friend. And before we start talking about the events of the final, um, can you tell me how you kind of felt when you realised that A, you're going to be going to a major tournament final, and B... How did it feel as England kept winning and you realised, oh, the final we've got tickets for is going to be England versus Italy and it's going to be the first final in, the fir- like in 55 years? I'll come to you first, Tim. Well, we actually kind of fell into it. We, we, um, I got tickets for the semi-final on the Tuesday, so the day before the semi-final mm-hmm. and then we got tickets for the final on the Saturday again we're just the day before yeah it was less it was it was just over 24 hours before kickoff and we managed to get tickets so it was a bit of a rush but it was a, it, it was such a, a a thrilling moment when you realize that you've actually got them and they've come through on your app and it's like they're there it says England versus Italy on it. It's it's it's, it's an exciting moment because uh, I'll be honest, I didn't think this would happen for a long time for England. Nor did I. Nor did I, Tim. So, can you explain then from from leaving the home and going to the stadium? At what point did you did you realise? Oh, okay, this this isn't going to go the way that we probably want it to go. Because I understand that once you got to the stadium, things didn't really run as smoothly as you would hope uh well we you know, got to the same we parked up we'd been you know, parked at a, a nearby church uh went to the outlet center and got something to eat and the atmosphere was great it was fantastic you know and there was fans milling around and it was all all peaceful and happy at this point it was very similar to the one on the wednesday at yeah. the denmark game it was very similar atmosphere you know really laid back and just Mary and as we came out of the outlet centre and thought we'd start making our way up to the stadium because we thought we'd try and get in early, 
as we came to the, the bottom of the, the, the steps, which obviously is no good for a wheelchair, so we were going to have to go down the side. And at that point, a whole load of fans rushed up the steps. And we just sort of said, jokingly, oh, they must have opened the gates now. And it was only afterwards we realised that actually they'd forced their way through. We then got in the lift, showed our, our NHS codes at the, um, at the outer perimeter. Um, but no, it, I wouldn't say they took an awful lot of notice of them. You know, we could have shown our Nando's reservation and I think they would have waved us through. They, they didn't really look at it and they just yeah said, oh, they okay. didn't really even ask it was more no. more the fact that I had it out and wanted you know wanted to show them because I was you know being quite cautious yeah I mean they weren't even that keen to even ask they asked on the Wednesday but I don't think they asked on the Sunday I just had it out ready for them mm. and showed it to them went up in the lift to the to the outer perimeter out, obviously outside the stadium and we went anti-clockwise round to where there was a, a merchandise stand. And it was while we were queuing there next to the stand, there was obviously metal fencing and barriers. My recollection is that the barriers were, were next to a, a low wall, which gave people the foothold to climb onto the wall. And, and suddenly people started climbing over the, these metal fences. Somebody climbed over, a steward made a mad grab for them, couldn't. He, he ran off to ch- steward chased. Uh, somebody else did it, Stuart Chase, and which then leaves them short on numbers. And you could see the pattern starting to happen as more and more fans started to clamber over these fences. So can I just interject? So when you saw yeah. people climbing over the, the, the fence, did, did you start worrying then? Or was it a case of, oh, these are just some rogue fans who have got in, they'll, they'll be sorted, it'll be okay? At that point, we thought it was just a couple of mm. dozen that had, had climbed over and, and tried their luck yeah yeah tried their luck and um, and also but at that point they've still got to get into the stadium mm. so we, we didn't think it was too much of an issue other than them bypassing the covid checks and we didn't think there was too many of them but as we queued and got nearer the front of the merchandise queue you could see more and more coming over and the stewards were at full stretch and uh, trying to mm. stop them so you went to the merchandise stand and then you went to queue to get in how how was that process of getting from the outer perimeter and then actually getting into the bowl of the stadium I mean, what happened there horrendous <laughs> uh, we got to the disabled gate of our particular turnstiles and for for those that don't know the system for the disabled gates there it's like an airlock system so there's a door that opens outwards you then go into a small a very small space you know, covered side space almost, just about enough per room for one person in a wheelchair. And then the outer door is supposed to shut and then the inner door opens and you go through into the stadium. And it, it worked fairly smoothly on the on the Wednesday. Uh, we, we'd got in without any problems, but on the when we got there on the, for the final, there's just a crowd of fans milling around the disabled entrance and we couldn't even get to the door. And the only time the door opened was for them to throw out ticketless fans, and then it was quickly closed. Couldn't even get to the door. For Tim and his friend Joe, who was also in a wheelchair, all they can see is backsides and people milling around them and and just crowds, and it's claustrophobic and it's a little Mm. bit frightening. So I got Joe's wheelchair, and uh, my mother's son, Martin, was pushing Tim. We were trying to get through the fans, but they weren't budging. And we couldn't even get near to the door. We've been there a little while, and eventually this, this guy in a, in a you know, high-vis jacket took charge and quite authoritatively shouted, right, come on, let's get the disabled in now. They've been waiting half an hour. We need to get them in now. So I thought, great, thank God somebody's trying to help because we're getting very frustrated that we couldn't even get near to the door. So as he's done that, 
people have sort of made way a, a little bit and we're able to get through. And he's taken Joe's wheelchair and pushed it towards the door. I thought, well, you know, again, thank God somebody's trying to help. And just as we got to the door, we kind of twigged what was going on. And I said, went to take the wheelchair handles. And I said, he's with me. And he said, no, just trying to get the disabled in. Come on, we need to get the disabled in. I said, no, he's with me. And it turned out it was an England fan in a high-vis jacket that was literally hijacking a wheelchair to get into the stadium. And the, the steward on the gate said, you know, thank God you spoke up, he said, because otherwise I would have just let him in. So once you've you noticed that there was this supporter who's trying to um, pretend to be a steward and, and get uh, Joe in, what, what happened to that to that guy? Did he just run away? Did, it, did the steward try and stop him? No, it was so chaotic that he, he just stayed in the, in the, in the throng, really. Uh, and the, the steward wasn't going to do anything because they just needed to get the door shut again. Uh, because so many people, they obviously targeted the disabled entrances um, to, as, a, as a weak point. Also, in the, the same breath, when they're throwing out the ticketless fans through the disabled entrance and they're just chucking them out, nothing happened to them. They weren't escorted away. They weren't going to be, be locked up for the duration of the game or anything. There was nobody on the outside to take them away, to arrest them or to just escort them off the premises. It was just thrown back into the throng at which point they tried again. Tim, can I ask you, you just seen your friend Joe <laughs> nearly get abducted by by this, this supposed yeah. fan. As someone who's a wheelchair user yourself, did that put you on high alert? And were you worried your, for, for your own safety regarding someone kind of hijacking you as well? No, more due to the fact that we only really, uh, me and Joe only really became aware of what had happened when dad explained it to us in the lift once we were actually in the bowl of the stadium. Yeah. Until then, we were just, both me and Joe seemed always a steward trying to help or whatever. Of course, because you're in the wheelchair, you're facing forward, so you don't really mm, see what's yeah. going on behind you. So yeah, exactly. And I do wonder whether that guy in the high-vis jacket tried his luck else, you know, in another uh, another gate. So you've got into the stadium, and I'm guessing you're like, let's just get to it. whereabouts we need to, we, we, where we need to sit, and let's just kind of settle in now. I think when I go to football, when I'm at football, I, I kind of feel like, okay, the stewards there, there's a form of authority, you feel safe. Like I have an element of safety. It might be a false sense of security, but you feel safe did you get that feeling once you were kind of sat down before we even got to our seats uh, there was another problem because having got through the that airlock system and we stood we were kind of the other side of it talking to the head steward trying to find out what to do and at that point we became aware of a, a disturbance within that airlock system now obviously with, with throwing out fans somehow the doors had both been opened or partially opened at the same time so we're about three or four feet away from that airlock door and all of a sudden we can see a lot of fans pushing into that airlock from the outside now people may have seen footage on twitter of a a different door uh, where fans have burst through charged in uh, kicked punched and bulldozed over anyone that got in their way Uh, it was exactly the same we're aware that fans have pushed in through the airlock. There's probably five stewards trying to hold them back. All they've got for protection is a high-vis jacket. Uh, so there, there was no police anywhere to be seen. They, they had no backup. Uh, it was just five stewards who were probably expecting to just be welcoming people and directing mm. them to their seats. Unprepared. And I'm not blaming them. 
uh, no. in any way. They absolutely did their best. It was above and beyond, really, because they put themselves in, in harm's way, trying to hold them back. But there was too many. The, the five stewards were pushed out of the way, trampled over, because they were pushed to the ground just by the sheer weight of numbers. And I would say two, three, four dozen just piled in, trampled over these stewards who by now were on the ground. And they also knocked over somebody who else who'd come through the disabled entrance just behind us, or maybe in front of us, but he, he was on crutches, he'd got his leg in a cast, he was knocked to the ground, trampled over, and that was literally two feet away from, from me and Tim. Even though this was the Euro final, was any part of you thinking, we shouldn't be here, like, this, this isn't going to be safe? Yes, yeah. it was yeah. at, at that point, when all the ticketless fans burst out, it, it, I mean, I, I've, I've, you know, I'm, I'm 61, so I've, I've grown up with, with football. First time I'm, me and Joe felt unsafe at a, a public yeah. event. I, I mean, I've, I've, you know, I went to Turin in 1980 when there was all the tear gas and I've been to the Ireland game that was abandoned and when the seats were being thrown and everything. So I'm not unused to it, but it, it, I started to think, actually, especially when you're in, in charge of two disabled people and it's your responsibility to look after them. Uh, start to think. Actually, I'm I'm not not comfortable with this. Uh, on the bit about the sort of like the corridor, the the you know, after the after the doors, it was more scary for me and Joe because we were facing towards the concourse, so we couldn't actually see a lot of what was going on. Dad could see. Yeah. Um. So we could only imagine it in our heads of what, what it what must be going on. Cause we'd seen the guy on the crutches get trampled and we'd seen the steward get uh, knocked to the ground and hurt quite badly. So we'd seen the start of it, but we was facing the opposite direction. So we could only imagine what was going on while we were there, which is, which arguably makes it even more unnerving. Tim, you kind of spoke about is the most unsafe you felt, at mm. a at a public event, just to give oh, it some, comfortably. just to give it some context. Am I right in saying that you you go and watch Southampton? Oh a fair yeah. Bit? So so you go so you've been to a football game before. You know what the process is like. It's not like this is the first time you've been to a game. Of football. Yeah, yeah. I, I yeah, I've been season ticket for years. You know, been to all these, been to loads of different, not just games, but you know, events, concerts. You know, yeah. Never felt that level of unsafe. You know, Joe Joe been to away games as well. Joe had been to the South Coast Derby, which is a really hostile environment with Saints crests on his wheels. Mm. And he said that he felt way more unsafe at Wembley for an England game than Fratton Park for the South Coast Derby. So you go up to to the the, the upper arena and and you're making your way to your seats. I mean, how how's that process going now? Are you, are you kind of like, like I said before, let's get to whereabouts we should feel safe and we'll watch the game what's happened's happened this is a euros final let's just try and enjoy what we can enjoy yeah that, that was exactly how we felt we got in the lift and felt well thank god that's over we, we can just go up to our seats come out of the lift and mm. it's quite a walk or quite a way to our to our gate to get to our seats but the, the problem was that that upper concourse was jammed with england fans um, and the reason for that, of course, is you're not allowed to have alcohol within sight of the pitch. So you have to drink it on the concourse. So therefore, all the England fans who all wanted a beer crammed together in a very confined space. Obviously, no social distancing. 
none of them wearing masks because they're all chanting and they're all drinking beer, and you know, which is was fine. And the atmosphere wasn't, I mean, there was an edge to it, it wasn't hostile towards us or in any way, yeah. but it was it was hard to force our way through such a tight throng, and particularly for Tim and Joe being at wheelchair level and all they can see is is backsides and they can't see over the top like me and Martin could to see where we were going. At this point, we're, we're realising that there's a lot of ticketless fans in there. So, as you say, we, the aim was to try and get to our seats, but also there was a concern about what if there was somebody in the seats and also whether we could then leave those seats to go and get a drink or to go to take them to the toilet or, or whatever. And eventually we managed to get through the throng. And I said, right, you better go to the toilet now. So I took Tim and, and, and Joe both went to the disabled toilet. And and I had to, I mean, one of the things that Tim really likes at football is just to, is to get a, a drink and um, and enjoy that during the game. And I, I had to say to him, I'm really sorry, but you know, one, it was a long queue. And mm. two, um, I just want to get to the seat. So you can't, you can't even have a drink because um, mm. it, it, we, I was just so worried about losing the seat or somebody pushing in. or And it, it just didn't feel safe even on that upper concourse when there was so many mm. people milling around. Um, and no surprise that me, Tim and Martin all caught COVID that day, tested positive two days later. Uh, having, having had 18 months of being ultra careful, ultra cautious and and mm. um, you know then England gets to the final so you go but it was it, it wasn't COVID secure at all and that's proved by the fact that the three of us got it. We found our season. There was people there were people behind us on the disabled platform who I don't think had tickets. A couple of them had lanyards uh, with some sort of pass on. Um, I've no idea what they were or what they were doing there. Next to me so there, there was I was on the right and had a seat and there was a space next to me and Tim was in his wheelchair there. Uh, but next to me on the left, there was a, a seat and then a, a space to the left of that for the, another wheelchair. But because on the other side of that, there was a, a, a kid in a one of these really high-powered wheelchairs, uh, which took up a lot of space. It meant that the person who should have been in, in the space next to them, I think they were ambulant, but there was no seat for them. Effectively, there was three of us Crowded, uh, crammed onto two seats uh, just to, because nobody had a seat or one of them didn't have a seat. So we, we ended up, I don't know if they had tickets. I, I didn't ask and I wasn't going to ask. I was, you know, it was kind of keep your head down type of thing. But it, it, but it was very worrying. Tim, it's been like five weeks now since the final. And looking back, I mean, how how have, has your emotions changed? Or, like, how do you feel now looking back five weeks on? I'll be honest, I'm quite alarmed at the fact that Obviously, in the days following it, there was, you know, a lot of, you know, attention to it. And now since like that first week, it's kind of just been silence, really. And so, you, so you feel like people have just moved on and yeah. they're not, they're not and, focusing and on it. And there are serious lessons to be learned. And I don't know whether they're going to be trying to learn them or whether they're just going to try and forget this ever happened <laughs> I, I must say that there is uh currently there's an independent report happening by the fa and i believe that you mm. are doing the same so what would you like to see come from that report you you lived it you experienced it you know what happened what do you want to see come from it so this never happens to any other fans ever again 
Well, I want them to actually talk to the people, you know, in these reports, I want them to actually talk to people that were there and not just, you know, as I say, brush it under the carpet of, you know, like, okay, we'll, we'll do an independent, imp- we'll do a report to, to say that we've done a report but not actually try and learn the lessons because that's the most important thing. If we've got any hope, if there was any hope left of us hosting a World Cup in 2030, which I think pretty much died that night, we need to learn the lessons because one thing that I've always said to, you know, me and Joe have always said when talking about World Cups and whatever is we are one of the few countries that could host it tomorrow. Now I'm not sure we could because the security was inadequate so let's say there is a world cup does come in 2030 and from the independent report you don't think things have changed would you would you go to to uh the final again tim yeah (laughs) (laughs) is it it because it's the final yeah and uh, yeah and especially if england made it it would be like time opportunity but we would be a lot more wary. Yeah, hundred percent. In terms of the the actual report, my, my slight worry on the on the report is it looks to me like there might be a lot of wriggle room um, be, because you have three different organisations involved in the planning of the final, and I've got a horrible feeling that possibly Wembley will say, well, it's the FA's responsibility. The FA will say, well, it's a UEFA competition. And UEFA will say, well, it's down to the venue and it's Wembley. And between them, Mm. they might just do a little bit of blame shifting and nobody will take overall responsibility. As indeed, I don't think they did really on the day. I still don't know really whose responsibility it was. I don't think... uh, We did see a cohort of police march past on the outer perimeter, but all they seemed to be doing was marching. And there was certainly none near the turnstiles where the, the problems were. And once all the fans were piling over those fences, they knew, they knew that hundreds, if they, they reckon it possibly even 5,000. Once fans started scaling the fences, they should have had police at all the disabled entrances um, and stopping people from trying to get into the stadium. And if they hadn't got enough, well, one, they should have done, but two, uh, they should have called for backup. Um, because it was obvious that it was getting out of control uh, and there was a, a major problem brewing. The stewards, as I say, they really did their best. I've got no complaints against them, but I don't think that they were, they were prepared for what they had to face. Uh, I don't think they were trained for it. So they would absolutely need better training. They would need proper security staff, police, more of a police presence, um, ticketless fans that have been thrown out shouldn't just be put back into the throng to try again at a different turnstile, but they should be uh, at least kept out away from the from the stadium for the duration of the game. My, my fear is that people would just blame each other and nobody will take overall responsibility. Graham and Tim, thank you so much for uh, speaking to me. Yeah, thank you very much. Thank you. With the decline of the Metropolitan Police Force to conduct an interview, I wanted to speak to a person who could give some understanding of police tactics and understand operational activity. And that person is Nick Glynn. Down the laptop, as it is nowadays, I've got Nick Glynn. How are you, Nick? I'm good, mate. I'm good. How are you? I'm doing very well. Before we get into the reason why we're talking, let's talk a little bit of football. You're a Birmingham City supporter. It's all rosy for you guys at the moment, isn't it? Well, yeah, three games in. It's amazing. Joys and Sorrows, that's one of our songs. And 
a bit of joy at the start. We don't get ahead of ourselves because we know that it's normally followed by sorrows <laughs> upon sorrows. So. Um, so the reason that we're talking, we wanted to get an idea from a person with a policing background. You are currently the Senior Programme Officer at Open Society Foundation, specialising in policing and justice. However, before that, you spent 30 years in the police force. Can you give a listener a little bit of a background of the work that you have that you did within with, with the police uh, over those 30 years? Yeah, so, I mean, I, I did quite a, a lot of different things, as you, as you can do in the police, and I rose up through the ranks as well. But I suppose the sort of thread through my service was I worked on, um, I worked on pub- public order a lot, literally for my whole service. So I went from being, you know, one of the, the young officers standing behind a shield or standing in a, in a cordon right up to being a, a football commander, a bronze commander at, uh, you know, at, Le- at Leicester, which is where I, um, which is where I worked and worked on an England game as well at um, the King Power Stadium uh, as a tactical advisor as well. So I had a lot of involvement in public order all the way through my career on police use of force, on all of the sort of physical, operational um, aspects of policing. I was the vice president of the National Black Police Association as well, so I had a lot of input onto the sort of the race and racism side of aspects of policing. So, yeah, a lot of experience around conflicty stuff, actually, which <laughs> is probably going to be helpful for this conversation, I think. Yeah, I mean, because we've all we've all seen what happened at, at uh, the final Euros. You yourself was there. Um, how did you experience it as a non-disabled person? So I arrived on Wembley Way at Wembley Park. I think it was around four o'clock. And honestly, it was mayhem at four o'clock. And actually, it was difficult to to walk up Wembley. I'd got like a little suitcase thing, you know, a little wheelie suitcase. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And in the end, I had to carry it because you couldn't wheel it because the whole of the floor was covered in glass as well as everything else, all, all sorts of other rubbish, but it was covered in glass and it was packed with people. There were bottles being thrown. I'm not just talking about cups or beer being thrown. I'm talking about actual bottles being thrown when Italy fans were walking up Wembley Way and people had realised who they were. I think I texted a mate and said it's carnage at four o'clock because that's what it was. So when you're walking down Wembley Way, at what point did you start seeing police officers either to the side or 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 um, in front or in the crowd? I mean, did did you did you see that? I saw some. Yeah, there wasn't a lot there, but you know, it was four o'clock. Kickoff was eight o'clock. There was a you know a number of police resources around a particular uh, bar or a place where there was a load of England fans sort of congregated in a bigger group, but there was. There was not lots of police resources there, um, to be honest. There was plenty of Wembley folks, you know, like the the help. Like I think they had like blue tops on and that. It were really helpful. That hot through the whole tournament. Those folks, the volunteers, they did an absolutely fantastic job of being not just being helpful and giving advice, but also just being friendly and adding to the to the atmosphere, the positive atmosphere. But that day, you know, it was a dodgy place to be. So let's kind of talk about the, the, the exciting subject matter of uh, stadium footprints and uh, right-of-ways and what's public property. Because I think it's, it does kind of put context into what we're talking about. Wembley Way, you would see it as um, a public land, a public walkway, but Wembley itself is a private piece of property. So can you explain what a stadium footprint in, is and what police can and can't do inside 
and outside of that footprint? It's not really what the police can and can't do. It's, it's when they okay. can do it and whose responsibility it is. So uh, I, I don't exactly know what the footprint is at Wembley, exactly where it ends and where it then becomes public space that you know is the responsibility of the police but also the local authority the council Brent council as well so it's about responsibility and to to my mind Wembley Way is responsibility of the Metropolitan Police and Brent Council because it's essentially the road that leads to Wembley Stadium once you get to and I don't know the name of the street there but once you get near to the steps where the sort of check, the first checkpoint was, if we want to call it that, um, where the check-in for people's lateral flow tests and all of that. I would imagine that that is the point at which it then becomes Wembley Stadium property and therefore their responsibility. And if it's not exactly there, it's going to be somewhere near there and, you know, a similar sort of circuit around the stadium. I guess if you sort of looked at it from a a helicopter or a drone or whatever, it would sort of be obvious as to sort of where that demarcation line is. And so the responsibility on the stadium footprint is with Wembley until either they say we need to hand it over to the police because it's got out of hand or, you know, something t- difficult has happened or happening and the police need to take responsibility or indeed a police commander decides we're going to take control because of, uh, again, some emergency or some serious uh, serious reason like that. So early in the pod, we spoke to a son and dad, and they talked about supporters jumping the fence and uh, and and people lingering around accessible entrances. It's been widely reported that there was a a Telegram group. It's kind of like a WhatsApp group with hundreds of people who plan to target the the accessible entrances in advance. Is this a failing in the police that this wasn't picked up as a potential threat in a city that that has history of terrorist activity? Uh, to be honest. I would say terrorist activity aside from a contingency planning point of view. So that's a responsibility of Wembley Stadium, of the police, of Brent Council, of the fire service, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, all these services. They'll have been planning for the Euros, but equally for the semifinals and the final for a long, long time. I would be amazed if the issue of ticketless fans trying to get into the stadium had not been raised by somebody. If it hadn't, that would be incredible. If it has, then it'll be fascinating to know what the uh, decisions were, what the contingencies were for that, what the planning was around that, because it seems to have happened en masse. And I guess also around intelligence, both from, you know, within the Wembley Stadium and the employees and the people working for the security at Wembley Stadium and more general police intelligence. Again, it seems surprising that that a huge telegram group like that and those kinds of conversations weren't picked up beforehand one of the things that appears to to be um obvious is that the the people trying to get in were um had total disregard for disabled fan safety targeting the accessible entrances pushing past disabled fans who were waiting outside uh, one wheelchair user was hijacked by a fan in a high-vis jacket to, tr- to try and get inside. We understand that stewards who were using the accessible entrances to eject the people getting in were reported to uh, throw them out of the accessible doors and disabled people queuing to get in uh, were hit. Stewards were overwhelmed before the game was kicked off. Two questions, really. I suppose, are stewards there to police or are they there to help? And if stewards were being overran, how come the police 
weren't coming forward and taking control of the situation, in your opinion? Dealing with the stewards first. And actually, just to tell you that I ended up by some sort of accident being inside the stadium when a load of fans rushed through and was right. One of the clips that's on social media, Mm -hmm. I was right near with the guy who was filming it. I filmed a little myself, but obviously he was close, so he got a better view of it. So I saw that. I saw fans piling in. I saw stewards throwing people out of the um, accessible entrances. I saw all of that. I didn't see people getting you know, struck or injured outside of that and those entrances, as you've, as you've mentioned. But I can imagine it happening for sure. It was chaos. And uh, it was well beyond what stewards sign up for. The question you asked is, aren't they there for, they're there for safety? That's what they're there for. They're there for safety, to direct people. They're not there to, you know, manhandle people, which was happening. Uh, they're not there to intervene with fights, I guess, on the odd occasion where there's a, a confrontation between a couple of people, they, they do that. But this you're talking here about people being kicked in the head on the floor and stewards trying to intervene. That's how serious it was. So it seems to me that, and this was well before kickoff. Yeah. So it seems to me that those situations were well out of hand and beyond the capabilities, training, and indeed the risks that stewards would have signed up to to do that job. And so then you have an issue of communication between stewards, the stadium authorities and the police as to what's happening, where is it happening? And I guess it was happening in multiple sites, which of course makes it difficult to to deal with them all. I don't know what those operational decisions were, and I wouldn't second guess them because I, you know, I wasn't sitting in the chair. But it did seem that, well, there was no visible police response to the incidents that I saw. It was stewards that, that dealt with it inside the stadium, and which is surprising. But I guess that's an issue of like who was in charge and who was in control at that time. And indeed, what resources were available, police resources were available, and what were they dealing with at the time? Because what looked difficult inside was multiplied many times outside the the, the stadium itself. You know, outside the turnstiles, it was. We've seen the footage, haven't we? It was absolute carnage and dangerous, and and, and incredible actually that somebody wasn't really, really seriously hurt or worse. So, in your opinion, what what lessons should be taken from this event to prevent this ever happening again? I guess it's really got to go back to a number of things. Firstly, to the planning and the contingencies that were the contingency planning and the operations planning that took place. If some of these issues weren't raised in that planning process, then questions need to be asked as to why not. And if they were, then questions are raised about what the responses to those were. I guess there's always one about communication, isn't there? So, how quickly you can respond relies on knowing what's happening and where it's happening and having the right resources available. So, so there'll be questions around that. There'll be questions about intelligence because this should have been an idea that this was going to happen and, and therefore measures put in place to mitigate it or prevent it. And I guess also then, you know, it's a matter really for the big partners in this, Wembley Stadium, the Metropolitan Police, Brent Council to an extent, and others, uh, and I don't know who all the people at the table were, 
I guess what would be what's important and what would also be reassuring is for people to accept we got this wrong. Of course, the responsibility for the criminal behaviour of some lies with those who behave like that. Um, and, and already in the media, they're, they're sort of uh, paying the consequences, I see. But, um, but yeah, for the authorities to say, yeah, we could, we, we, we could have done better. We need to do better next time. And we'll learn from the mistakes and be honest about them. I don't know whether the Metropolitan Police or Wembley Stadium have said sorry, but they really should. They really should say sorry to disabled fans who must have been terrified, to children who must have been terrified. And I saw some of those kids absolutely terrified in tears because of what happened. Saying sorry, the Met Police, Wembley Stadium saying sorry, will go some way to acknowledging we made some mistakes and we're going to look at it and learn from it and be honest about what we learn and share it with the public. And of course, the final thing really is in that review, um, in that um, examination of what happened, to involve some of those groups like yours, like the Football Supporters Association, like the England fans groups, to include some of these groups in those deliberations because then it gives it more weight and credibility and people will sort of be more confident that they're being listened to. Nick, thank you so much for your time. I'm sure people listening would have found it useful as, a, as, a, as an ex-officer yourself uh, to give us that insight. So um, thank you very much. It's my pleasure. Great to talk to you, Nick. Tony Taylor is the chair of Level Playing Field. I wanted to get a better understanding of how Level Playing Field acted after the final regarding fan comments to what happened and how Level Playing Field will be working in collaboration to make sure that this kind of event doesn't happen in the future. Hello, Tony. How are you? I'm, I'm really well today. Thank you very much indeed. Good, good, good. Um, so some people might find it weird that an employee is talking to their boss on the podcast, but uh, I think it's important that we do hear from the, the work that Level Playing Field are doing. So as you know, this episode, we're going to be talking about the Euros final. In the episode, I've already spoken to a father and son who attended the game, as well as a former police officer who's now campaigning for better police practices. But I thought it'd be a good idea to kind of wrap up the podcast, like I said, talking to a, a voice of authority. So before we get to that, though, I wanted to get your thoughts on what happened and, and what we at Level Playing Field have been doing behind the scenes to support fans who have have had a terrible experience at the Euro finals. Well, I, th- I think that's a, that's a really important point because there is, as you, you said earlier, there's an awful lot going on behind the scenes that uh, uh, is done by level playing field to talk to people who were affected by by the incident. We get we get uh, regular phone calls coming in. We talk to our stakeholders on a, on a regular basis, and you know, obviously, we're trying to gather as much information as possible about uh, about this so that we can uh, feed that into uh, Baroness Casey's re- review. So you spoke about the review a little bit there. Um, what is it that that you're hoping we get back from that from from that evidence review? And and what what are you hoping happens? I suppose because some people might hear a review and go, "Well, okay, it's great. It's going to get written up, but where's the action? What what are you hoping yeah. to see?" <laughs> it's the usual story, isn't it? We'll have a review. <laughs> now that buries the story. What what? Let, let me answer you with uh, uh, re- reversing the question a little bit. What I don't want to happen is just some bland report that comes out and says, 
lessons have been learned. It was a peculiar uh, set of circumstances. It was the first final for 55 years for, for, for England. It was in the midst of a pandemic and there were a few drunken yobs that caused the problems. If we get that sort of re response from the, from the review, I'll be exceedingly disappointed. What I really wanted to do is carry out what uh, what I'm calling a, a holistic review of uh, the situation, because I don't think we can blame the Metropolitan Police. We can't blame the Transport Police. We can't blame staging security. We can't blame stewards. There was a whole mix of things that went on on that day that should have been sorted that weren't sorted. And we really need to get to, to the crux of that, because if we don't, we run the very, very real risk that you will be inviting me back for a podcast in a year's time, two years' time, and we'll be talking about a catastrophe where people have died at a football match. And I never want to get to, to that situation. So what I'm hoping for the uh, en inquiry is that it does look at uh, issues like the intelligence that was going on. And I've seen the Metropolitan Police saying that, that you know they've done everything, everything right and that their officers performed uh, superbly on the day. And I will concur with that. I, I think any police officer who puts themselves in the... In the way of danger to protect the public should be lauded and, and praised and I, I'll be the first first to do that but I think we have to look at the the intelligence that was going on the intelligence gathering we have to look at the fact that it's not the first time that a stadium has, has been breached by the disabled entrances it happened at uh, Old Trafford in May so there's there's a, a precedent for what what happened we also need to make sure that uh, you know we, we just you know, get that information and we, and we react on it and work effectively to prevent this sort of this sort of thing happening ever again. So you kind of touched on stewarding then. It's kind of it's mm. one of the big concerns that we've received back regarding how stewarding was was conducted on that day, with accessible entrances being targeted and also uh, stewards being seen to eject the intruders through these these entrances. So I've asked this question to Nick Glynn, the former police officer, but I'm interested to get your thoughts as well. Are stewards there to police? Or are they there to help? I, you know, I think the, the, the fundamental thing is you and I pay our taxes and we pay our taxes. Then part of those taxes go to policing to play, pay uh, to protect us. And at the end of the day, it's police who are charged with, with protecting us. Stewarding is there uh, effectively to, to do what the word says, you know, to steward events, to make sure that things move, move slowly. But at the end of the day, a steward, A, may not have the, the intensive training that uh, police officers have. They don't have the protection of, of insurance coverage that uh, police officers have. And I think they're in a very difficult, difficult situation. So what we need to do is get to a situation where the damage is prevented from happening. See, what happened on that, uh, that fateful day in the, at, at the final was that everything was reactive. You know, they were reacting to a, a set of situation, uh, circumstances. What they need to be doing in, in this situation is to be proactive, to prevent it, to make sure it doesn't, uh, doesn't get to the stage where you are putting uh, stewards as, as the last line of defence, which is, as, you know, as I see it from the reports I've got from people that I've spoken to, it's exactly what it was and it's, that's not acceptable. Do you feel what happened on that day then has been reported appropriately in the press? Because everyone spoke about what happened and how horrible it was. But as I was speaking to the, the son and the father earlier on, they said that it's just stopped now. The conversation's stopped. No one seems to be talking about it anymore. Do you, yeah. do you think, A, the focus was correct when it was being reported, and B, are you fearful that no one's going to care now 
now it's kind of like behind as the football season started again and we're all kind of focusing back on that well i think there were there's a couple of uh things that followed on from the from from the breaches one the fact that england lost lost the final that became a big news story the bigger new news story after, after that was all those abhorrent racist slurs that were were made and that obviously and quite right rightly got uh, quite a lot of uh, uh, attention but we, you're absolutely right. We can't allow the uh, this breach to to be forgotten about, to be ignored. And you know, t- the, I think the biggest thing that uh, worries me is that I, I've heard. You know, it, it sort of brings back memories of, of the Hillsborough tragedy. We, we hear reports that it was caused by drunken yobs. Now, the fact is, we know from you know from from reports that people were organised on, on, on in, in this breach. They were using WhatsApp groups. You know, I, I've seen a uh, a report from uh, one individual who said he he was getting messages about where to go on WhatsApp. So, you know, the idea that it it was just a bunch of thugs who really weren't organized is a dangerous one for us to assume that there was a, a level of organization about this. The fact that they targeted the disabled entrances to get in because they knew it was a weak spot. That's not the sort of thing that a, a, a drunken yob does on the on the spur of the moment. So there was a bit of planning in, in this, which is where I keep going back to the, the, the issue about football intelligence and uh, the, the, the uh, uh, information that people were getting beforehand this this should really have been uh, been monitored and, and controlled so level playing field have just put out a survey whereabouts uh, we surveyed over 1400 people and the people who took part in the survey seven percent said that they didn't know when they were going to return back to football we conducted that survey before the events of the euro finals do you suspect that the number might have increased because of what fans witnesses because i i know from just speaking to, to supporters a couple did come back to me and say, like, I wasn't there, but I saw it on TV and it had put doubt in about returning back to football, which has started about a couple of weeks now as we're recording. So do you think that number would have increased or do you think it would have been the same? I, I'm sure there will be people who are reticent about re- returning, especially for big, uh, big competitive games that that clearly is uh, is a problem i'm i'm organized tickets for myself and my grandson to go to the next england game i've got to say there was a little bit of trepidation uh, about it had it uh, been an, an incredibly competitive game which uh, you know I, I rather hope against andorra it will uh, it will not be that 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 competitive uh, i might have thought more seriously about uh, the, the safety and you know we're in the 21st century for heaven's sake and you know we're talking about adults worrying about taking their kids to a football game i thought we gone beyond this stage I'm, I'm old enough to remember the the, the violence in the 60s and, and 70s and it, it was horrendous i thought we got rid of it clearly we haven't and if we don't deal with this uh review of the events not just at wembley but you know what happened at old trafford uh, beforehand if we don't do that properly then we run this very serious risk that people will die at a football match and you know heaven forbid that that, that should ever happen how do clubs make sure that they they bring the fans who might have some fears about what they saw back to the Premier League because or or the EFL, the Championship or, or National League? What what do clubs need to do to kind of ease those worries? 
I think clubs have done an awful lot throughout the, the pandemic. And I've always been uh, uh, very praiseworthy of the, the work that clubs have done uh, at a very difficult time. And I think they need to carry that on as we you know, move into, into the season. The important thing, I think, is that uh, stewarding needs to be present. It needs to be trained stewarding, which, you know, it, by and large, it is. But we've got to make sure that the football clubs work with the, you know, again, I go back to my, my point about this, this holistic approach. We can't just regard this as a, sta- a stadium security matter. It's, it, it's beyond that. You know, we can't just say, for instance, as I've heard reported, that Wembley is a difficult place to, to, to police. You know, well, you know. The Wembley Stadium has held football games for goodness knows how long. There's the Wembley Arena next door. We know it can be policed and you know, there, there'll be plans in, in place. The same will apply with uh, every single football stadium around around the country. People know how to deal with it and they've got to reassure the, the fans that the, the appropriate level of security is in place. What I don't want to see is just a line of police officers around every uh, wheelchair viewing platform or other areas that uh, disabled fans congregate, because I think that would be a really backward step. But we need to make sure that the stewarding and policing and the the, the, the whole ambience is, is right and protective. Thank you so much, Tony. It's a pleasure. Thank you to Nick, Tony, Graham and Tim, who took part in this episode. If you were affected by what happened at Wembley at the Euro 2020 final, please email our charity partners CAFE, also known as Centre for Access to Football in Europe. You can contact CAFE via this email address, amy at cafefootball.eu. We'll be back in a month's time. Thank you for listening. <laughs>